0: Hi, all. Just want to take a quick moment to tell you about today's sponsor, BugFender. BugFender is a tool for mobile app developers and solves the typical problem. You have an error report that you can't reproduce, and it would be awesome to be able to check the bug together with the user, but they're thousands of kilometers away. It would be even better if you could connect your computer to the user's phone to be able to debug the app. What do you do? You use BugFender. BugFender is an SDK that you add to your application with a single line of code. All application logs are sent to their servers, and you can check any phone around the globe from their website. BugFender is super useful for your application, be it in early development phase, beta testing, or production stage. BugFender unlocks the possibility to detect errors earlier, better assist users who contact your customer support, and ultimately achieve an excellent customer satisfaction. Visit now at bugfender.com buildphase, sign up for free, and if you decide to upgrade, you'll have a 20% discount just for listening to buildphase. Thanks again to Bug Fender for sponsoring today's show.
1: I wonder how that works. I wonder if there's some sort of delay, though, because like I speak into my mic and it goes through my computer and under sea cables under the Atlantic and it gets to you and then you respond and come back. So I wonder if you try to actually sync up my whole recorded audio with what you've recorded through Skype. Does it
2: actually line up? I don't know. Probably not. I guess it can't really. But I guess the point is that right. having having the whole conversation recorded in one spot from any one spot at least becomes sort of a baseline off of which to work with the, the things. I don't know. I really don't know.
1: That does not sound fun. No. <laughs> hey
2: everybody, this is Mark in San Francisco. And this is Jack in Stockholm. And this is Build Phase. Yeah, but the, this friend of mine who does it, like, he does it, we, we record recorded every second week. And he's a busy guy, and he finds time in his free time to somehow sit and take this hour-and-a-half thing recorded by three or four people all around the world and, like, put it together. It's impressive. And no one's even paying him to do it. Wow. Just for fun. I- the joy of audio editing.
1: I thought that was going to be my uh, my career path when I was in high school. Oh really? I thought it, I wanted to be a, like a recording engineer. Okay.
2: Yeah, I can see uh, the appeal of that. Like I took I took the AV courses that were available to me in high school. There was not so much. There, there actually wasn't much audio, but there was like a video recording studio and a video recording class. They had cameras and they had a little sort of control room. I mean, this is in the late '80s. So it was. Pretty primitive compared to what we have today, but there were decent cameras and a uh, like mounted on decent. I don't know what they're called trolleys. Is that what they're called? Like these big, you know, the like you see on a TV show when they're filming a live TV show. They have these big wheeled things that they can slide around, and mm-hmm. it was like that. It was sort of fun. I, I guess because I, I did a lot of that video production stuff in my free time when I was a teenager. But then was, that was extremely. That was just like recording on big VHS tapes, and then. <laughs> Editing things together by taking just two VCRs, just like two home VCRs, and taking setting to one to be the recorder, one to be the playback, and having to, having all the all the sort of clips, trying to just sort of figure out what was going to be where in advance, so that you could record all in one go. Because often, like home VCRs, you can set it to record and you can hit pause, but it will only stay stay in pause for like maybe ten minutes and then shut off. And whenever you ha- whenever it actually stops recording, like when it's most VCRs, you can hit record and pause and unpause, and it will it will have a very nice cut, at least if it's a good VCR. Whereas if you actually stop it and hit record again, who knows? You'll get a horrible VHS glitch in there. Like you just can't rely on that for anything. So we have to have all of our all of our shots in some kind of order, and maybe have a, a multiple tapes kind of all queued up to roughly the right spots, so that when we could pause the recording device we could take the playback device and stick in the right cassette and cue it up and hit play on that and pause another one at the same time and hope for the best
1: that sounds excruciating
2: it was it was fun though it was very hands-on like you didn't you know now now with computers it's sort of you just sort of click around and you know there's all the software do all this stuff for you but this was like this is just like a step above cutting tape or cutting film and taping it back together. It's just, you know, it's it's so so primitive compared to what we have now. I would not want to do it that way again. But it was cool that we could do it just with like, you know, off-the-shelf consumer VCRs and like we could rent a camcorder for a weekend to record the video we wanted to record. I got into this because I had a, I was in a
1: band in high school Mm. and we started trying to make a demo tape and we originally were trying to do it with one microphone Mm-hmm. multiple takes on a four track cassette recorder right that was that went horribly <laughs> so we saved up some money and this was like 2001 and so digital recorders that worked with compact flashcards had kind of just come down in price to a point where they were affordable to 16 year olds okay and I picked up one of those and i got really really interested in like editing it together and actually making it sound decent mm-hmm. with our you know one or two mics recording it converted my friend's bedroom basically into a studio Mm -hmm. so for over a year he was living in a studio more than like we were recording in someone's bedroom okay was fun cool i miss being financially challenged and having (laughs) a lot of energy to just devote into things like we would go to Home Depot and find, like, the cheapest plywood we could. We would go get free carpet samples from a carpet store. Uh-huh. And we were just, like, carpeting up pieces of wood. And then we would just stand them up at angles against the wall to try to not have, you know, perpendicular flat surfaces against which, like, sound would bounce around. Oh, sure. Yeah. So Hard. crafty back then.
2: Yeah, I think uh, th- having these kind of constraints can help with creativity. Like, if you have to solve a problem and you don't have the money to do it in in what is considered to be the right way, you're forced to find your own ways of doing it. Absolutely. We're all too lazy now. It's all too easy. So spoiled. It's weird because I look at all these tools I have at my disposal. You know, even if something as relatively simple as iMovie is so far ahead of what was available 30 years ago. And yet, 30 years ago... When I was a teenager, I was making a lot more video, having fun doing it than I ever do now, even though, you know, I have my, I have my iPhone and I can record everything I want and it looks great and I can edit together so easily, but I never do that.
1: Hmm. It was novel. You know, you put in so much effort that when you watch it, you show it to people. They're like impressed that you made a video, right? And that's kind of what keeps you going right now. Anybody could just make some video.
2: I remember we, uh, we made some video in high school, and we went through a lot of trouble to try and get the local cable access channel to play this little sort of 30-minute, roughly, kind of documentary we made about a, about a pond. <laughs> it was pretty absurd. And I think at some point, someone actually got them to play it, but they played it at something like 10.30 in the morning on a school day. So <laughs> those, all of us who were involved could not actually witness this being played on television. Sad. Do those still exist? Cable access, like public access. I don't know. Yeah, they should. They probably do.
1: I guess that's just YouTube now.
2: Yeah, yeah. Probably these things probably exist, but are not not considered useful anymore.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, Well. Hmm. So how are you? Uh, how are things? Pretty good. Yeah, things are things are good. I don't know if this is the place to talk about it, but we can talk about it anyway. That I don't work a Thoughtbot anymore, just like you don't. Welcome. Thank you. We are both alumni, of Thoughtbot, and um, that reminds me. I got I to invite you to the secret, uh, the secret alumni Slack. If you're not already in there.
1: Wait, I was just gonna. I was just gonna say that I need to invite you. Is there <laughs> another one?
2: <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Okay, we can take this offline later. But <laughs> we got to sync up our secret Slacks, I guess. Yeah, we can't be having two of these. No. But uh, anyway yeah so it's it's interesting i've been the past couple weeks I've been talking to a lot of companies, and um I've got some good offers right away, so it's been like I haven't had, had any stress about it at all. I've had more of the stress of just making a decision about where to go and work, which is a very enviable position to be in like I don't have to worry about if I'll find a job, it's about which job I will take ultimately so yeah definitely so at, at this point in your career, what are you looking for? Good question. I mean, the two big alternatives that I see in my mind, or I see in the world, are consulting companies, like ThoughtBuddies, and product companies. And the upside of consulting companies is you get to work on a lot of different things, you get a lot of different impressions, learn a lot of things, meet different people, see a lot of systems, solve a lot of different problems for different different companies, the upside of working at a product company is you can be in a project kind of for the long haul and be a part of developing and evolving something over a longer period of time which has its own its own rewards i was visiting a company yesterday where their ios app has been out for five or six years this company and i met a couple of developers who've been working there for a long time i think they've been there for five or six years both those guys and they were talking about all the kind of, all the things that they went through evolving the design of their application to find the, you know, they got tired of having to solve the same problem again and again in a unique way each time. So they were just how about how they built abstractions around the things that they realized were kind of pain points. So for instance, they found that they would have to change their visual design now and then in terms of layout margins and fonts and sizes and colors and things and so what they did was they eventually moved away from using the standard stuff that we are doing in terms of uh, nib files or storyboards and they just completely programmatically build and lay out their interfaces so that if they want to change the padding on a particular kind of button they change it in one spot and it immediately updates the layout and fixes everything everywhere and they don't have to they don't have to dig through storyboards they don't have to dig through nib files or anything so, and you can do some of that stuff by creating custom subclasses as well, um and other ways U- UI parents. But they have a way that, you know, it works for them and they're able to do a lot of stuff very effectively. So the iOS team is about a third of the size of the Android team, and the apps are pretty much the same apps. So they're able to be quite effective with what they've been able to work on. And th- and that that comes from able to sit with the same code base and over a longer time learn what are the problems that keep coming up what are the things we keep having to change and how can we make things build things to more effectively do that
1: so is all that configuration just like some shared key value store
2: i didn't actually see they showed me some of their code i didn't actually see what their layout code looks like so it could be i really don't know if that stuff is just like yeah just a dictionary who knows I didn't get to that point. Well, they did show me their, the way they're setting up their event handling. So basically, they got tired of dealing with UI view controller and subclassing that and, and all the headaches that, you know, you encounter things all the time. Like the order in which view will appear, view did appear, all these things are called. And and so that instead they set up so they actually don't have any subclasses of UI view controller whatsoever they just have, I think they just have uh, static methods that will set up and configure a generic view controller and create the views and put them in place and set event handlers on all the controls. And they made their own FRP, their own kind of functional reactive programming system. They're not using Reactive Cocoa or another one. They've sort of rolled their own, tailored to exactly what they need to do and nothing more, basically. But it looked pretty cool. So, like, basically, the the setup for any particular view controller they wanted to, to display, they would just have a single method, like a single static method that was an extension to UI view controller that would do everything in one big method. It would create all the objects, call whatever code lays them out in the way they were doing their layout, and uh, set up all the all the event handlers, and that was it. So, pretty interesting.
1: So lots of view subclasses, and then the views have, like delegate or have blocks or something for all the actual event handling and then a single actual UI view controller instance is just being used to just host it and plug it into the rest of UIKit?
2: Right, or maybe they'd have multiple UI view controller instances that use in different situations, but they didn't need to subclass UI view controller. So I think they could do like some navigation and that sort of thing using multiple view controllers at once, but they were all just generic, and they were just sort of set up, okay, in this case we're going to have a master detail view, so we have a scrolling column of stuff on the left and a detail view on the right, and we set up those two child controllers, but each of them is set up just by calling a static method, or maybe, maybe it's not a static method, maybe it's just a normal instance method on the particular view controller that's being set up. It must be, yeah, that must be it. And they didn't, I think they didn't have too many custom views either. I think it was pretty much standard uh, buttons and labels and things, but they had extensions to things like UI button and UI label to do the kind of layout and view setup that they wanted to do. I believe. Again, I didn't actually see the code that did the layout and view configuration more. I just saw a bit of sort of the view controller stuff. Is so. this a product company or an agency? This is a product company. And so they're, they're oh, okay. And uh, so I, I was talking to some of their, just a couple of people on their tech team, just the iOS people. That's, it's a big ish company, a couple hundred people, I think altogether of which maybe about 70 of them were the tech side of things. And that seemed to be mostly backend and, some web and then the smaller teams were actually the iOS and Android. Even though it's a product that the interface that people see is all just iOS and Android. Like the the apps are what the only thing people use. Like there's they don't really have much of a web presence, for instance. Got but it. there's just a lot, a lot of back end stuff. There's a lot of transaction processing going on.
1: I was worried this was an agency and that they were building lots of apps with this system because as a former consultant that, that is my nightmare. Right. It's <laughs> taking over an app from someone else that's using some sort of crazy town banana pants system like yeah like what you've described yep
2: yeah so no they, they were doing their own thing and so it was important to them they had been keeping their team very small on purpose because they felt they felt they worked together and they were being very effective they want to grow their team a little bit now because they have a need to just do more things and so it's important there it was very important to them that they could find the right kind of people who could adapt to their way of doing things because they they know it's very non-standard but the way that it it seemed very smart to me also it seemed to be a very mm-hmm. logical way of doing things. you know it's nothing that I would have thought of immediately, but it, it's very much in line with a lot of the sort of reactive programming things that we that we've been doing elsewhere. so so that was interesting. so I guess the so back to your question about the like what do I want to do in my career? My main thing is that I'm probably gonna go to work for a consulting company. There are some product companies that are interesting to me at this point joining a product company to work on something for the long haul like these guys have been doing for four or five six years if i'm going to do that it has to be very much the right kind of product it has to be something that i that i really sort of believe in and can feel passionate and excited about that i really want to work with this because i've been on projects where i've worked on something that is not really something that i love and after a while after a couple three years it can kind of get I don't know, it can get kind of stale somehow. I mean, of course, in any product, there are always challenges, things always have to change and be updated for new business challenges and that sort of thing. But uh, I guess, you know, there are just some product categories that interest me and some that don't as much. And another thing that factors in for me also is I really like the sort of highly communicative nature of the way, for instance, that ThoughtBot works, where... Within the team, it's all based on pull requests. Everyone sees or can see all the code that's happening very easily. It's like the knowledge of what's going on spreads throughout the team very quickly and very effectively. I like that quite a lot. I want to work in a place where both I feel like I can help people learn things and also that I have a lot to learn from other people. Especially the second part of that is kind of like the old adage of among musicians that you never want to be the best player in your band. Right, because if you are, then you have, you have nothing to learn from these other people you're playing with, sort of, and they're not going to challenge you. And when I came to Thoughtbot, that was very much my feeling was like there was no way I was going to be the best player in the band at Thoughtbot because there are so many smart people who are doing so much cool stuff. So, I really want to be in a place where, where I feel that same sort of thing that, not that I have to be surrounded by complete geniuses, but that I want to feel that there is enough of a a sort of critical mass of smart, talented people doing interesting stuff, solving problems in interesting ways that I can feel like I have a lot of space to grow into.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The more I, I talk to developers, the more I, I keep hearing that sort of thing that like if you're at a product company, there's going to be things that you like and things that you don't like And a consultancy, the same deal. But the one constant is always having a good team to work with, and right? You can't be the only one pushing something forward. I think a big thing that Thoughtbot ruined for me is that I always need to be at a company that has a strong learning culture. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess that goes hand in hand with like not being the best person on the team. Yeah. Uh, because the best people always do want to learn and get better. That's definitely like shaped like how I like look at the team that I work on now and how I'll look for teams to work with in the future. Right.
2: Yep. Yeah. That's very much, that's very much a, a crucial thing. And I think, you know, that's, I guess I've, ha- I've had jobs – I've had a variety of jobs where those things came into play more or less. And I guess I've actually had – I've had quite a few jobs where I have felt like some of the key people on the team were kind of playing their cards close to the chest and were not really – like they didn't really want to share in in what they were doing. Or there was no – Maybe they wanted to, maybe they would have been open to doing so, but there was nothing within the company that encouraged that. So there was no, if somebody was working on, on one application and somebody else was working on another application, those two people maybe didn't talk to each other much. Like there was no sort of transfer of knowledge between, you know, between, okay, how is this team doing this? How is the other team doing that? It was just sort of every little team for itself. And that I think is, it's not fun to work in that way, I think. And it's, it's wasteful of people's knowledge and time because you'll end up having different people solving the same problem in different ways when they could be trying to solve it in a more general way together in a solution that would work in a broader sense yeah i think any
1: company where the occasional bike shedding is okay like you have the time and space to do these these types of things i think that's what would keep me away from really early stage startups now Mm -hmm. is that i don't want to be in a mad dash right just to get a product out i still want to build something i'm proud of but but for me, I need the time to work on something and feel good about what I've written and not just rushing through things. Right. For that reason, I'm, I'm not sure that consulting would be a move I would make like after a product company either because it's, it's just a lot of that. Hmm. I personally thrive on feeling some level of ownership and I can't do that when I'm only on a project for a few weeks or a few months at a time. Right. I, and I think it's what you said about you would go to a product company if you felt like it's something that you used. Mm-hmm. For that same reason, it's hard for me to get really fully on board with somebody else's product
2: yep yeah i I agree completely it's uh if you're going to work on something for a longer time you have to have sort of a reason to want to do it because our jobs are things that we spend a huge chunk of our waking time doing and it's uh you know it's important to be able to work with something that you really feel like this is something that is that is important to me but i think also of course that can grow you can start working somewhere with a product that you're sort of meh about but over time you you're working on the product you're using the product you're learning how your users are using the product you're learning how the business relies on this product and, be, and it becomes something that you feel a part of plus you started you know you've been pouring your blood sweat and tears into the product so it becomes a thing that you start to have that feeling about hopefully
1: yeah that's absolutely been the case with with venmo for me uh-huh i came in and i wasn't an active user of venmo but i've sort of um gotten drunk on the kool-aid sure in the last 18 months
2: <laughs> yep definitely so we'll see i'm actually um i'm at the point where i'm just about i'm very very nearly decided on something so we'll see
1: cool all the places you're looking are these all stockholm based companies or are you going to do remote
2: work i'm only looking in stockholm right now i'm okay i thought about maybe trying to do some remote work but as i thought about it more i like, there were a couple of remote opportunities that appeared or passed my way and i actually did not follow up on them because i realized that i actually i mean i like i like being around people that i'm working with and this was actually one of the things that was kind of a pity about the stockholm office of thoughtbot was that we were never many people we were at the most six people or maybe seven or eight if we had some guests now and then and we were a great group and it was fun working with these guys but uh I can appreciate the ability to work with more people in a larger team than that. So going you know, sort of stepping down to working remotely where I'm physically just by myself is not really the thing I want to do right now anyway. Got it. So
1: Yeah, when I was on Thoughtbot, I think the biggest project I ever worked on where I worked with other Thoughtbot developers was maybe one other iOS developer and a designer mm-hmm. and a couple of Rails folks. Yeah. And being at a product company you get exposed to a lot of different teams and that's kind of a nice... I sometimes dabble in Python you now. Sure. I'm like, we'll submit patches to the platform. That's really cool. Never had the yeah. chance to do that before. Yeah, being more engaged in product decisions, it's kind of helped me grow and become a more well-rounded engineer, I think. Yeah. Like being forced to kind of like learn to work in the system. Right. Whereas when you're hired gun, there's not too much of a system. It's just submit PRs and get something done. Right well cool i'm glad to hear you've almost landed somewhere
2: yep it was it was unexpected the whole thing but uh it's fine it's just a little bit of extra stress in my life for for a few weeks here but uh you know it's not terrible stress because again i had a couple of really good offers right out of the bat so it's fine it's it's a very much a luxury problem to have that i can i that i oh how will i choose <laughs>
1: So I think last time we spoke, we were talking about app extensions.
2: Is that right? Right. Yeah, we were talking about that.
1: A minor update on that. I completely bypassed trying to migrate our existing persistent store into the container to try to get or try to make some data available for my extension. Mm -hmm. And I realized that since this extension only works on iOS 10, this would let me use a lot of the new shiny stuff in core data as well. NS persistent container is fantastic. I don't mm-hmm. know why this didn't exist ten years ago. Okay, what what is this? I don't know what this is. It's a brand new class in Core Data in iOS ten that basically wraps up the Core Data stack. Hmm. In the simple case, you can initialize it with the name of your persistent store, mm-hmm. and then there are properties. There's a property on it, a view context, which vends out an main queue managed object context. Mm-hmm. You can create background contexts to do work. But most of the time, you just need to call this one method that's perform background task, and you give it a closure, and there's a context passed into that closure, and so you just do everything on that context within that block. It's all guaranteed to be abiding by the the thread safety, you know, concurrency rules. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very nice. Cool. Not exactly sure how the stack is created. I don't think it's a parent child setup. If I recall from the from the Dub Dub talk on it. Mm -hmm. But it's, I think it's one persistent store coordinator and multiple contexts and it Mm -hmm. handles merging things between the contexts for you automatically. Wow. Yeah. So they finally solved like the 90% use case for most people using core data.
2: Right. Cool. Yeah. That sounds like a thing that should have always been there. Yeah. So you've been using that and it's actually, it's, it, it does what it says it does. Absolutely. Works incredibly well. Awesome.
1: I hadn't used core data in a while. And mm-hmm. I was a little disappointed to see that like the code generation stuff for NS managed object subclasses that's been around for a while doesn't mm-hmm. work with Swift 2.3 because oh. I'm, I'm in Xcode 8, yeah. but a lot of things are sort of just geared for Swift 3. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, I, I go to generate some classes. It's like, well, we can't generate Swift
2: 2.3 classes. Mm. Bummer. That seems... It's, I mean, it's understandable in a sense. In another sense, Apple is an enormous company. It <laughs> should be able to hire enough or put enough people on that project to support, you know, the two current versions of the language that they are pushing.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Other niceties, NSFetchRequest is generic over a type. So oh, if okay. you do, you know, execute fetch request on a context, you don't get an array of any object anymore. You get an array of your actual type. Nice. But, of course, those Objective-C generics don't bridge into Swift 2.3, so that only works with Swift 3 as well. Ah. Another bummer.
2: And is so I think we talked about this before also. Moving to Swift 3 is not really something you're ready to do just yet anyway.
1: No, we don't so. have the time for that. Yeah. I expect that
2: to be like a week of work, Okay, getting everything over to Swift 3. So this uh, container, does that work within the app extension as well? Is that the point of this?
1: Yeah, I I did most of it in a in a framework that I have just in our workspace, uh-huh. and that way I'm not duplicating the code, and I have just something in there called like a, a top user store with a method to fetch and update, and so the app is updating, the extension is fetching, and so the actual only things coming out to the extension are just some structs that I've defined, so the extension actually doesn't have to import core data or know about any of that at all. Okay. Because I I don't really care about relationships. I didn't want to have to deal with getting a managed object and worrying about what thread it was created on and and all that. So I just immediately map it into a a value type and pass it through the
2: interface to the extension. Okay. So the store itself is in one of these shared spaces, I forget what it's called. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Cool. Yeah, it's worked out pretty well. That sounds really nice. Because that sort of thing is, as we all know, a headache or has been a headache maybe not for much longer
1: what's that sharing code between targets
2: or no sharing uh core data stores in sensible ways between uh, between right. threads and between probably also for that matter between something like an app and extension i mean i'm guessing that this yeah. end of this ns uh, persistent container probably is helping behind the scenes there as well to some extent yeah so i i did have to
1: subclass ns persistent container because there is a static method that's an NSURL that defines where the store file will be placed Mm -hmm. and by default i think it goes in the applications documents directory Mm -hmm. right i think that's right but in this case i need it to go into the shared container directory right so that's available to both so i just had to subclass override that to actually return that like shared directory but other than that everything's fine cool yeah
2: So your extension is only reading from that, right? It's not changing anything in there.
1: Right. Yeah,
2: it's such a simple use
1: case. It doesn't need to write.
2: So I guess my, what I wonder, which I guess you won't have to tackle in this case, but maybe somebody will sometime, is what happens if both the app and the extension are both writing to the same shared uh, storage? Are there potential problems there? I'm probably going
1: to butcher this information, but
2: this is in the dub
1: dub session from this year. Uh, Okay we'll we'll link it in the notes mm-hmm. that it now supports multiple readers and a single writer concurrently because okay. the lock the locks are no longer held at the coordinator level the mm-hmm. locks are held at the store level hmm. and I think using write ahead logging it's capable of synchronizing all of that for you and I think if you're funneling everything through the persistent container and using like their background context or their background tasks and their view context, everything is just handled for you.
2: Okay. Awesome.
1: Yeah, I mean, all these things were here for a long time, but there was no good guidance from Apple on how to set any of this up. Right. And I feel like once they got to a point in their own stack where they could do this locking at the store level instead of at the coordinator level, then finally they can put all of these pieces together into like a higher level abstraction that everyone can benefit from.
2: Right. That makes a lot of sense. I always hear—I don't always hear—I often hear people who have more or less given up on core data because they encounter some problems and they don't know how to, you know, how to work around it. Again, I think—and I think it's partly because, like you're saying, Apple doesn't always give good guidance about how to do certain things. There's not a lot of clear examples always, and so there are a lot of options. You know, third-party things like Realm and that sort of thing, which are all—you know—a Realm is fine for what it does. You know, but I think, I think there are a lot of people who are missing out on core data in a way. Like I think, it, I think it's it feels a bit misunderstood to me by a lot of people. Do you get that sense
1: as well? Totally. And I feel like I've been the only one still championing core data. Mm-hmm. The only reason being that I know that Apple uses it internally, so it can't be as bad as people say. And right. it, it is one of those <laughs> things where. As long as you're using it correctly, it works really well. Unfortunately, using it correctly has been very difficult and Apple's very, very poor at documentation. Right. So, and the the fact is, is that if you do it correctly, you keep getting performance improvements. You keep getting bug fixes every year. Whereas mm-hmm. I feel a little less sure about something like Realm, which again, does its job very, very well, actually outliving my project. Right. Will Apple outlive my project? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs>
2: really likely.
1: So, yeah, that's that's been my primary reason for not giving up on it.
2: Yeah, I think it's I think in a lot of technologies there is a complex learning curve, right? Where you can you can see the the surface of some something new and say, "Oh, wow, cool. I can I can do these cool things with this this technology really easily." And then you get a little farther along and things get complicated and you can say, "Okay, oh, this doesn't handle this well, or at least I can't see a way that this handles this well. Maybe this thing is crap. Maybe I should write my own thing or use the you know use some other third party thing that someone recommended because clearly this thing is broken. whereas like you said, you know that Apple uses core data, so it can't be it can't be that broken like i think I think I've seen this kind of reaction to a lot of things from apple when people when people come to this platform, things like interface builder where at first blush, it's like, wow, this is really cool. I can lay out my things, and I can make a, you know, make a, my visual design. And then people encounter a variety of problems, and which are usually re- a result of not understanding. Well, maybe they don't understand how how to do constraints properly, or you know, in the old days before constraints, how do you do things in other ways. And so you can do some cool flashy stuff initially, and then when that flashy stuff kind of when you hit a barrier, and that doesn't really Stretch to what you need anymore. It's you to say, "Oh, this thing is not any good. I'm gonna have to do it, do it my own way, do it by hand, and whatever." And I think that's something that I that I've seen pretty frequently. You know, and it, uh, same thing with Xcode itself that people get frustrated with Xcode and want to just ditch it. And and I can I can understand these things sometimes too. But I think there's a certain amount of, especially when dealing with Apple's technologies, there's a certain degree to which you kind of have to grin and bear it in a way because very often these technologies, when you embrace them and when you can fight your way through the problems, which can be, again, a lack of examples, lack of documentation, when you can discover how they actually work and can start to use them effectively, as you said, you're going to get annual updates and automatic performance improvements because Apple is doing things that are improving stuff behind the scenes and everything you're doing is going to start just working better for the in general obviously there are bugs and that sort of thing but
1: yeah in the case of framework usage i, I agree that it's usually a misunderstanding which leads people to be sort of salty about something mm-hmm. i don't quite agree with xcode i think more often than not it is a, it's actually xcode just sometimes screwing up and d- despite how much you know about how it should be working you just get just the craziest things happening sure i realize that's not very scientific i don't have specific (laughs) examples but i feel like even people who know xcode really well run into problems that are a pain in the ass
2: yeah i think that's that's definitely the case and xcode certainly could be smoother and you know i I think that they're essentially doing all they can in some sense but again there's also the notion that apple is an enormous company and maybe they could afford to put more resources on it but at the same time putting more people on a project doesn't always make it better because it ends up being more more communication more channels of confusion so i don't know it's, it's not an easy problem to solve
1: yeah i think there actually just better error messaging for common errors would go a long way and this mm-hmm. is something they talked a lot about in the new automatic code signing dub session which i've been using and it's been fantastic it awesome it makes like you know new cert new profile for what you've opted into automatic for mm-hmm. which is great but it doesn't touch anything else it purposely does not mess with anything that you've set and one thing they talked about was just greatly improving the error messages like when something does go wrong they've just really clearly laid out this is why this isn't working here's the steps you can probably take to fix it etc and right. just exposing more information to us through the ui that goes a long way
2: yeah that is that is super important it's been so cryptic for so long right all all the code citing stuff and it's it's um for something as critical as it is to building and submitting applications you know the the fact that many of the common problems as you say are so poorly reported in xcode has been a problem so it's good if, they, if they've actually fixed i'm i'm glad to hear you saying that, that it's working better for you i've not actually been doing much you know vacation being laid off all these things so <laughs> i haven't really been touching touching i've been downloading the new versions of xcode as they come on every couple of weeks but i haven't really done anything
1: yeah they seem to have like righted the ship and i don't know if this is something that maybe it's taken them like two years to actually mm-hmm. get on top of it and it seems like they don't do anything to us because we've been complaining for two years but they're kind of locked into this annual release cycle and if they miss You know, the 2015 train, then it pushes back their release for another year. But I'm sort of cautiously optimistic that, like, they finally have realized that pleasing developers is kind of important. And this (laughs) is, like, one of the first things that they've done to try to keep us on board.
2: Yeah, hopefully that uh, will continue. Yeah. By the way, what do you think of the prospect of not Xcode, but something Xcode-ish for, say, iPad? I mean, beyond the 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 playground stuff that they've added now, because there's been a lot of you know people sort of talking about this as a, as a possibility. To me, it seems kind of far fetched in a way, but I I'm interested at the con- about the concept.
1: My gut reaction says, no, stop bad. Don't do that. <laughs> but then I think that I'm like, well, maybe I'm just being curmudgeonly about it and I should be more optimistic and like try to get on board if something like this were to come out. But then mm. like an Xcode source kit still crashes on me once an hour, so it doesn't instill a lot of confidence that I could be more productive on an iPad. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to be this way. I don't want to be this snarky. I want to be no. bright-eyed and excited, but I'm cautiously
2: optimistic. Yeah, I mean, when you see that many of the, the pieces of what we're doing still aren't that solid, it makes you think, ah, should we really try and do something entirely different on a... Yeah, again, on an iPad and sort of like what what is the point of doing that when some of the pieces are still so as shaky as they are, as crashy as they are.
1: Yeah. Then again, iOS apps, even complicated ones, productivity apps from Apple are typically easier to use and more fault tolerant than their Mac OS X equivalents. So mm-hmm. maybe if it it's like a ground up re-implementation of Xcode, it could be good.
2: Yeah, maybe so. I mean, th- you know, they're... There are a lot of things that they can do. It's hard to think of how this applies to actually writing code. But, you know, some things when transferred from a desktop environment to a touch environment suddenly become a lot easier. Like, you know, GarageBand. On the Mac, in GarageBand, you always had the possibility of opening up a piano keyboard on the screen or using your actual keyboard keyboard as if it were a piano keyboard, which is, all of that is just... Terrible and useless compared to touching the piano keys on the screen on an an iPhone or an iPad. So, like some things suddenly become a lot easier. Not sure how this would apply to coding. Certainly not to typing code necessarily. But on the other hand, you know, there, there could be some things. You know, things like you can nicely have a, you know, have a color that's represented by a color picker, which you can drag around with your fingers. That kind of thing. I don't know. It's. I mean, I think that there are probably some possibilities there, but. The only examples I can think of are kind of trivial edge cases.
1: It does seem like there'd have to be more foundational work that has to be done, right? Because if you want a code sign, then all of a sudden we probably need a better interface for the keychain on iOS. Mm -hmm. You have to get certificates into there somehow. Mm -hmm. There's command line tools that need to be installed, I'd guess. Right. Can you run those sorts of things from your sandbox now? I don't think so.
2: No, I'm sure they would have to make an exception to all the sandbox rules for xcode itself
1: yeah and also on my mac i have a derived data folder that can become eight gigabytes <laughs> very very quickly <laughs> are we are we yeah. going to have the same thing
2: it's exciting exciting thought yeah <laughs> exciting in the wrong way so, yeah i don't know there, cool. yeah, there are a lot of open questions there but uh i'll have to wait and see by the way have you played with the uh, swift playgrounds at all on ipad very briefly i
1: I actually need to go update iOS 10 on my iPad. I think I still have Beta 1 on there. Yeah. And I messed around with it a little bit. It's okay. Also, I have a first-generation iPad Air, and it's starting to feel like a very, very old iPad. Hmm.
2: Yeah, that's what I have as well. It's
1: Yeah, playgrounds are like just a little clunky. Right. Simple animations that should be smooth or not.
2: Probably better in the newer betas, though.
1: Yeah, hopefully. Like, I guess at some point they're going to start shipping these betas in like a like a release build instead of a debug build. Mm-hmm. Everything just gets better.
2: Yeah, I think uh, the uh, Swift Playgrounds look interesting. I'm always interested in, in the possibilities of tools that can, in a simple way, introduce people to some of the concepts of what programming is. And I think when you have something as simple as an app like that, that you can install this app and it guides you through some of the basic ideas of what what happens when you're programming, you know, at a level that that a child can understand. It means that even an adult who is a non-programmer can run this thing and at least have some sort of hint of it. And there were, there has been technology like this before. There have been things like the Logo programming language, which was designed for teaching people some of the fundamental concepts of of programming. But really, you know, that never really made its way out of for the most part, elementary schools, and probably not even very many of those. And, you know, who has used Logo since the 1980s? Probably very few people. But Because I think that it is the case that in the ancient past, when you bought a computer in the 1980s, like if it was a simpler 8-bit computer or something, it had built-in BASIC, and like half of learning, a big part of learning to use the computer at all was learning to do at least a little bit of basic programming to, in order to accomplish some things, often. And that sort of thing has been lost. And you know, even later, outside of the 8 era, when, when people started, started to run DOS and Windows more, you couldn't always really get away from the command line. For certain, certain things you want to do to customize your setup and to change how things, the startup routines in your computer, you'd, you'd be at least modifying a batch file of some kind. Which, again, you know, it, It showed people a little bit of the 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 concept of how a computer works in some sense. You know, some it's some sort of programming. Whereas now, people who buy any modern, either desktop, laptop, or iPhone, iPad, can just jump in and start doing things and have not a clue, which is you know is great for the user case. But I think the percentage of people who are exposed to this technology now who then make the leap to understand that I could use, I could build something that would, that would run this myself. I think that percentage is much smaller now than it was 30 years ago. It's so like 30 years ago. Yeah. You know, if you bought, you bought an eight bit computer and you it had basic built in typically, it was obvious that, okay, I could actually, someone made this software. In fact, they were, you know, you, you'd buy computer magazines that would have programs you would type in and run. And so it became very apparent if you were a computer user, you could see, okay, software is a thing that somebody made and i could actually just type it in whereas now it's sort of like for a naive user not to use not to use the word naive in a derogatory way but just someone who's not initiated into the the secrets that we are doing like someone who's just using a device the things on the device whether it's built-in apps or apps you download or whatever are as opaque as how probably your car engine is to you it's just like well this is a thing that i you know i don't know how to touch that or i don't know that i even could touch that so i think it's interesting to have whenever technology appears that opens things up in a way that people can start to learn how to use it in a direct way i think that is a good thing
1: yeah this this whole movement of getting more people to learn to program is huge i saw an article the other day I think the CEO of GE said that all new employees at GE are going to learn to program in wow. something. I, I think maybe Python or whatever they want, but they're mm-hmm. going to have some very, very basic programming skills. And if this cool. can become like a fundamental thing that you have to learn, say, in school, that would be fantastic. I have an 18-month-old nephew, and like I'm looking forward to what Swift Playgrounds look like when he's five or six years old because he's obviously going to learn to program. I mean, I wouldn't allow anything else.
2: Awesome. Well, should we uh, wrap this up? I believe we should. Okay, good. Well, um, can you say the thing? Because I forgot the thing. I should I need to write I this say down. I haven't learned any of it.
1: I believe this is episode 104. So show notes will be available at buildphase.fm slash 104. And you can contact us at hosts at buildphase.fm or reach out on Twitter at buildphase. And we really appreciate ratings and reviews on iTunes. And that's the thing.
2: That sounds good to me. Good show. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed.